Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, when I first started in London and uh, as being part of being an agent. And um, he said, Chris, there's six jobs in the world you can do really well, probably. And only one of them you will literally starve because it will make you so happy. You'll starve to do that job because it's so much fun and eventually the money will come and the success will come. But if you follow your heart, and I just stuck with that all my life. I sit down with Chris Birch, who's the founder of Modifius, one of the most prolific RPG companies out there right now. We talk about the long and winding road and all the different experiences he had that led to him starting the company. We dig into the idea of Octung, Cthulhu, where it came about and how it became their first product. We talk about the origins of the 2D20 system and who was involved in making it. And make sure to stick around for our discussion on how he gets licenses for big properties like Star Trek and Conan. At times you'll hear his mic scratch against his shirt. Uh, it can be a little annoying, but I can tell you that this interview is well worth the effort. Chris offers good advice and some very interesting insights at the end on the future of the hobby. I'm able to bring content like this on a weekly basis because of our patrons. So quick shout out to some of our newest patrons. Keller O'Leary, Robert Anthony, Peter Shepard, Jesse Miller, Tony Vicinda, John Harper, Shauna Navi Drake, and Harrigan. Thanks to each of you and all of the other patrons that support me. All right, it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Chris. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Chris Birch, the founder of Modifius Publishing. Modifius, since 2012, has brought us some of the biggest games over the past decade. The list is really long, but they're probably best known for their 2D20 games like Octung, Cthulhu, Conan, Star Trek Adventures, Dune, Mutant Chronicles. Outside of the 2D20 system, they've even delivered us the most recent incarnation of the Vampire the Masquerade and a ton of other role-playing games and board games. And Chris, I could spend the next five minutes talking about all of it. But instead, how about I welcome you to the third floor? Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate you making the time. So we have a ton to talk about, but before we do, I need your origin story. So at, at some point, little Chris Birch knew nothing about games and dice and role-playing and board games. And then all of a sudden you saw it for the first time. I'd love to go back there if we could. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a two-pronged story. So on one hand, I think I was about eight, and my brother and his girlfriend, my brother Nick and his girlfriend, would go on a Wednesday night to the Sylvester's house, this family that they knew. 
um, and get they'd go and play Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, I, I had no idea what it was. But my mum one week went, look for God's sake, get Chris out of the house. <laughs> He's stuck inside. Take him with you. And they were like, oh, all right. So he took me along, and uh, that's where I first played Dungeons and Dragons. It was uh, in search of the unknown. I wow. they gave me a suit of plate armor, which is always a bad sign. <laughs> I called my character Brandon Carter, and within. There's a pit trap at the end of the first corridor after you fight the goblins in, in Search of the Unknown. And I fell through the pit trap and he gave me like three saving throws. Do you fall? Do you hang on to the edge? Do you get your armor off in time? And I failed every single one miserably. And so I drowned. So that was like a bit of a shock for an eight-year-old. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm out? They're like, no, no, no. You can create a new character. So I was like, okay, son of Brandon. <laughs> Um, but every time I create a, a sample character for a lot of our role-playing games, they've been called Brandon Carter. Oh, that's uh, And funny. every time I, I create a character for Elder Scrolls or whatever video game, it's Brandon Carter in honor of that first death that got me on the, on the road. Um, and then, you know, from there, I, uh, I remember getting my first box with the dragon uh, on the front on the pile of treasure and starting to do my own gaming and uh, creating adventures, which were all just mad dungeons with uh, uh, lots of monsters and treasure and magical artifacts. Um, but then equally, roughly around the same time, I think maybe I was, maybe it was a year later, uh, my mum would take me to her sisters who owned a cattery and I was allergic to cats. <laughs> and this is in a, a place called Gloucester, which is a very pretty part of the countryside. So I'd, I'd spend the weekend feeling like I had flu, of course, oh. miserable. And anyway, one day we went out for a walk in a local village and um, we went into this, I vaguely remember it was a knitting shop, maybe, <laughs> maybe an arts and crafts and knitting shop. But there on the back wall was this wall of little Ziploc bags with games in, well, what looked like fantasy and sci-fi art on that said they were games. Right. So I discovered Ogre, you know, Steve Jackson's Ogre, oh, yeah. which is a hex-based ratio combat game. I was terrible at maths. So I spent the weekend scratching my head over ratio combat, like two to one, three to one, four to one odds and stuff like that, trying to get my head around it, and then would play um, against myself. And it's if you don't know the game, it's a big, massive cyber tank versus lots of little tanks and infantry. And you've got to make a decision now. Do you take out all its treads to stop it moving or you take out its guns because it's trying to kill your command post? And so it's a great fun little strategy game and you can pretty much play it on your own. And I'd get my, and then I got my other brother playing it and he got into games. Um, my other brother, Al, he got into the board games. Um, Nick eventually fell out, you know, he stopped playing role-playing games. Um, and uh, but Al, I got into. I started doing Napoleonic wargaming with fifteen millimeter oh, wow. uh, miniatures uh, when I was about thirteen, fourteen. And Al got into it, and then he's stayed with wargaming and gaming all his life. And um, and I was doing fifteen mil English Civil War because I found a load painted in a bring and buy that were cheap um, at a at a, a war games show in Soli Hull, which was not far. <laughs> I grew up in Leamington Spa, like middle of England. Um, anyway, so I'd beg, borrow, and steal, and buy whatever I could that was painted because I just couldn't be asked to paint. <laughs> and then I was also collecting people's, uh, you know, fantasy miniatures that they didn't want. You know, the Sylvester's gave me some. Some other people had some they didn't want. 
and I also there was this the Prince August molds that you could mold your own fantasy figures. Uh, so at age ten, no, actually about age twelve, I was melting, you know, molten lead on the kitchen stove, which is probably not I'm sure it's not a great wrong. idea. <laughs> I remember getting a few nasty burns off that, and then literally spray painting them black. And that was fine. And, and I think I just yeah. put a few blobs of green paint on them and all these orcs and, and knights. So I kind of assembled this big fantasy army um, and would play out storytelling battles where I'd oh, have wow. like the handful of knights that I had in a bunch of like villages in a village in the middle of, in the, middle of the map. And there's the big army advancing them. And then the, the, the rest of the hero's army, the, you know, the, the archers, the elven archers and others, were like on the other side of the map and it was a desperate last stand and would they get there in time? I didn't care about balance at all. It was more about telling a story. And I actually found the write-up, I've got it upstairs, of that day when Isn't I played that, that battle and how fun it was. And I tried to do stuff that was way more fun and probably I'd lose, but maybe I could <laughs> hold on, maybe I could win. And I would just write super simple war game rule sets and because I was on my pretty much on my own, there wasn't a war games group in town, yeah. let alone anyone who played stuff like that. Um, I, I came up with my own uh, solo rule sets uh, and learned how to play against myself in a fun way. But yeah, I would come up with event cards and all kinds of systems. What's funny to me about that, Chris, is I've talked to obviously a lot of creators and designers for the show, and. It, necessity has borne us so many creators. Oh, yeah. That, like the story you tell is like, like I didn't have anybody to play with or I didn't have the money to buy the book. So I just yeah. started making stuff. It's yeah. amazing um, how much how much the um, the restrictions have given birth to creation. Yeah, sure. And I think it's also there isn't a game for X. So I want to make it. So um, right. I wanted a fantasy game of you know trying to defend a little kingdom against lots of big armies so i made that with lots of kind of art card and stuff made all this is when you could you could um you used to be able to buy sheets of uh die cut counters with no print on them from the gaming stores so i'd buy those and make my own counters and i loved this comic book series called alien legion it's the only comic apart from 2000 ad that i ever collected and it's basically the french foreign legion in space with lots of mad aliens and they they always get the brunt of the you know, rubbish work and, you know, conspiracies against them. And so I created a, a, a kind of miniatures game. Well, actually not miniatures, it was counters, but played it like a miniatures game based on that. And, you know, it would be a random, is it Tori Mantrock, I think was one of the main, the main guy. Uh, it just popped into my head. It, it would be a random number of the characters from the squad and then completely random enemies that they'd have to fight. And I came up with all these objective cards and, special event cards and they might be fighting two tanks and you know three sergeants and a bunch of infantry with three guys at some point <laughs> but it was always what could they do and could they get off the board alive so it was never again about balance it was never ever like oh i want to have a fair chance of playing this game it and it sometimes i'd completely overwhelm the enemy and i'd get loads of cool stuff and um upgrade my guys um but it was just the fun of exploring this world where you never knew what was going to happen. I love the fact that, oh, my God, I've got a tank. How am I going to? Oh, oh no. And then where's it start? Oh, God, it's in the middle of the map. So it was great fun. And I, I've still got that. I found that. I mean, I, 
dug out loads of stuff uh, from the attic a long time ago. So that, yeah, that's the origin story. And then I, I went through Final, uh, Star Frontiers, Metamorphosis Alpha, Gamma World. I loved all the post-apocalyptic stuff. Uh, actually, uh, and that started because my brother Al got into role-playing game and he he's like, oh, okay, let's play a game today. And I just assumed it was going to be Dungeons and Dragons. And I was this pretty rubbish native with a spear. <laughs> and, it, you know, and of course, at that, at that age, you're not thinking, wait a minute, these are different stats and this is a different looking character sheet. You're just like, I guess this is Dungeons and Dragons. And soon it became pretty clear that I found a metal wall that went up to the sky. And I found something that I had to roll on these tables to figure out what it was. And I kind of guessed it was a, a gun, but my character couldn't thought it was a hairdryer or something, you know. So, um, uh, and, that, and that was Metamorphosis Alpha, you know, which is uh, James M. Ward's fantastic kind of, um, sort of first post-apocalyptic type game for yeah. TSR. And that lived with me. That, that kind of gave me my love for post-apocalypse world this idea of like it's not what you think it is it's actually a big massive spaceship or there's all these ancient ruins with technological secrets and so yeah. i love the art of gamma world and this sort of fun kooky where you could be a talking badger or a you know a walking plant that shot barbed yeah. wires at people and stuff it was so much fun so that's i've always i always have a massive interest in post-apocalypse all the way back to that first game of metamorphosis alpha which um and also a love for uh, old fantasy science fiction because I'd help my grandfather who had a book stall in Coventry Indoor Market. So I'd go there and get paid on Saturdays to help sell books. I'd get paid in shopping bags full of Spider-Man comics and Famous Four and, and Weird War and Sergeant Rock, which was how I came to come up with Acton Cthulhu. Is that funny? I grew up on a diet of Weird War, like demon-infested tiger tanks. Um, and then discovered, you know, Call of Cthulhu and everything and um, thought I can, you know, create a world around that. But I also would uh, come home with Isaac Asimov and the Foundation books and uh, the Thongor Against the God books and the uh, Andre Norton Witch World books. Uh, and there was this one book I remember where um, all the people had forgotten there was uh, <coughs> West. West didn't exist anymore <laughs> you always went east or south you kind of they lived in this strip of land and it was this mind-blowing like what <laughs> yeah so i love interesting loved, that was all the kind of stuff that um you know like ancient um, ancient uh, ruined worlds lost secrets lost information yeah that kind of percolated through and has, has given me a big love for that sort of genre so well, it's, it's fascinating to me, Chris, that even when you weren't playing role-playing games, narrative was still the king, right? There was the telling of the story and the living mm -hmm. of the story that drove you. I'd be curious, though, um, it's usually at this point in the origin story that we hear one of two things, which is, you know, I kept playing I, and I found people at, at university and so on and so forth. Or it is I discovered, you know, uh, girls or sports or something <laughs> and I took a yeah. break. Um, so I'd be curious for you, Chris, was it a continuous love for you or did, or did you take some time off from gaming? So at, at university, I became the chairman of the, of the gaming society. So I was <laughs> that answers of, my question. <laughs> as, just as Games Workshop opened in, in the UK in Birmingham, I think it's wow. second shop. So we would go there and spend all the university budget on games. 
and we and we did lots of big we did big uh, costume gaming society balls that left the student union smelling of chicken and cider. <laughs> Isn't that something? After a food fight, so we did all these big uh, big lots of live role playing stuff. But I was also publicity secretary for the Christian Union, which is awesome. So uh, because I just didn't see there was nothing weird about Dungeons and Dragons, and I remember some. Um, <laughs> I remember then, you know, Christians talking about it and going, "Oh, it's a bit weird." It's like, well, I run it; it's really normal. Like, and that demon on the front of the book—it's rubbish. Have you seen how that, how crap that art is? It's not even like A-level art. That's like awful. What do you think? That's like evil. It's like it doesn't even look like a monster. It's just amateur. That's all. It is. Yeah, and then once there was some um, people visiting. We were running at like I don't know seven o'clock or something, and some some new student families were like on a tour and as just as I opened the door I went and then Satan said <laughs> <laughs> so um, a bit, you know I'm this I, 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 I think Jesus would um, pee himself laughing at the life of Brian I remember when life of Brian was banned as a kid and I was like this is hilarious and God would laugh at this like of course people at the edge of the crowd would be mishearing what jesus said and go what do you mean blessed are the cheesemakers i mean of course that would happen it's like it's funny like so um anyway so i i didn't see any barriers there and um uh just carried on so but then i i left college and uh became a uh, uh a band manager and and entered the oh, club wow. scene in london so i was um touring big rave bands to all the big <laughs> dance parties and, and going to clubs till like six in the morning friday and saturday night so i was burnt out so i kind of um left gaming for a bit um um, I, there was one friend that uh, uh, Stuart uh, Newman, who I ended up writing Starblazer Adventures with, uh, my first game, and we would play massive battles of 40k and, and um, epic and Star Wars the miniatures game when it was old metal miniatures, and yeah. make, again make up all our own rules so we could use all the miniatures, not just. <laughs> I mean, none of those games really could manage all the, you know the. The, the basic numbers of miniatures but we wanted to use everything on the table I had bar, a giant yep. battle so we would just make stuff up um anyway so but I was kind of in the full-on club scene for gosh maybe five years and then came back to it went to a gaming shop going oh I wonder how it's changed you know must look really cool and all the books were still black and white and still pages of text looked awful like really terrible and I, you know now I'm used to like you know then I've seen everything else in the real world I was like why can't it be better? Yeah. And um, anyway, so kind of we started playing games a lot with my friend Stuart and we'd come up with lots of mad ideas that, you know, we'd play till six in the morning, sometimes eating cold pizza and drinking Diet Coke and dreaming up gaming worlds. And at one point I was um, working on a project and met Mike Pondsmith. Um, who I knew I was going to meet Mike Pondsmith who wrote Cyberpunk. And... Uh, um, so we put this little game together called Blaster Array, which um, is a bit like Savage Worlds. It uses different dice for different um, weapons. Stats, yeah. Yeah, it's different stats. And it was a role-playing game, and it was set in an artificially created solar system called Modifius. Nice. And uh, we always said we'd start a games company one day. Um, and uh, so when I came to start Modifius, I was like, that's the name I'm going to use, of course, you know, because it came from the word modified. It was a modified solar system. 
and uh, and it's very easy to find a dot com name if you make a word up. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so uh, so that was good. Um, and um, yeah, so I kind of you know had been away a long way and then came back and just dove into you know playing war games again and you know a lot of the war you know the forty k stuff and because um, uh, he he was a great painter so. Uh, I just couldn't, I could never paint miniatures. I would buy stuff painted <laughs> off eBay. Still do. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, um, well, Chris, I, that, that yeah. oh, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say, but I can paint ruins. I can dry. I can dry brush <laughs> stuff. So I can paint scenery and tanks. Is that so? Uh, so we know we know you can put the undercoat on. We know yeah. you can use the spray can and you can dry brush. But that's yeah, the yeah. limit of your talent. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, well, that's going to transition us right into the next segment. So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, methods for crafting their creations. We've got to do all of that with Chris. So let's take a quick break and let's come back and let's talk about where we were headed, which is the creation of Modifius. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Are you a tabletop RPG player that is considering becoming a game master? Are you a veteran GM that is always looking for different ways to improve your games? GM Mastermind is an RPG podcast that tackles topics catering to the art of game mastering. But Craig, there are a lot of RPG podcasts that do that. Perhaps. But GM Mastermind has the brain trust. It's a guest panel made up of two to three game masters from different backgrounds and experiences that share their personal insights on a particular topic. This keeps the conversation fresh, diverse, and insightful from one episode to the next. So head over to gmmastermind.com or subscribe to GM Mastermind wherever you find your favorite podcasts. So we've already teased and know how where the name came from. Um, and we also know that if we're playing Elder Scrolls online, we know if we're playing with Chris Birch because we know what your character's name is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to go back to, you know, it sounds like you and your friend were dreaming of someday we'll, you know, we'll have a gaming company. Um, can we get a sense of when that becomes more of a possibility? So where, where were the earliest seeds of, I think we're going to try something. Sure. Well, um, I, I, I was working with a guy called Terry Jervis, um, one of my weird different jobs i'd been a rave promoter um an agent sort of agent for bands and then uh, started working for this guy terry for a couple of years uh, on tv development and production and he was kind of really interested in gaming and we were developing a science fiction show and a animated um uh kind of superhero 
uh, pharaoh from the past whose spirit inhabits the body of a pop, an R&B pop star today. <laughs> Hilarious. So we were kind of developing lots of games around that. And, and me and Stuart, we did all the writing for the background for both the projects uh, wow. to help out. And then after that, we got, um, I managed to, I met a director called Andy Wilson, a UK TV director and pitched him and he he got his production company to pay us to write the background for a big tv sci-fi series he was developing um so we were like oh my god we got money for writing science fiction storyline and the idea was like we're not writing the plot we're writing what's around the other corner like what interesting stuff that makes the plot make sense um right you know and helps the script writers so they loved it and uh so we did that job and then um Oh yes, yeah, so we were. Meet, I knew I was going to meet Mike Pondsmith, and we had this game Blaster Array that we, we array that we had created, <laughs> and I kind of copy pasted loads of art from Star Frontiers and travel and all kinds of stuff just to illustrate it, and um, gave him a copy when I meet him, and he's such a lovely guy. He's like, "Oh, Chris, thank you very much. It's really cool." <laughs> um, and uh, never heard. No, never. He never mentioned it again. Bless him. Uh, I mean, but we became good friends, you know, in later years. Yeah, uh, and uh, and he always. I remember him seeing him after a long time, and he he'd walk past our stand at Gen Con. It's like that that name Modiphius r- rings a bell. It's like, yeah, man, it's that book I gave you a long time ago. Do you remember? And it was the name of the solar system. He's like, oh wow, isn't that funny? So, and then I guess where it really came together was I I helped Cubicle Seven get the rights to Doctor Who because I now had a T-shirt company called Joystick Junkies um, that I've been doing for several years and was doing a lot of licensing work with video game companies, um, licensing their brands to put on our T-shirts. So I knew what to do and what they wanted to hear. So I kind of helped them go into the BBC. I got the contact and helped them do the pitch. And um, that's when it was uh, Angus Abranson and and, uh, uh, Dom, uh, Cubicle 7. So the... uh, I was also looking at uh, doing some T-shirts around a brand called Starblazer. It was an old British comic book. Uh, a lot of the 2000 AD artists would work on it before they went on to 2000 AD. It was huh. a 70-page kind of little digest format comic, a bit like the Commando comic, if anyone's ever seen that. And uh, it was 70 pages of one story, all black and white interior and beautiful color sci-fi covers. So I said, look, this is great artwork. You know how awful most of those art role-playing games are because they've got no art. This would give you tons of art. And they were like, that's a great idea. Why don't you write it? (laughs) (laughs) So um, in a fit of madness, I said, sure, and enrolled my friend Stuart. So, okay, we're writing a role-playing game. And uh, now the weird story is I was looking at Fate at the time, which um, I I looked at loads of games to figure out what to base it on. I'm thinking I'm not going to write a new system that's used something that's out there that ideally we could use, you know, uh, for a low or no royalty, um, just, you know, because there's no money in it. Um, so Fate had Spirit of the Century had just come out. Um, so actually, no, I think we did. Yeah, it was, there was royalty on Fate. Uh, but anyway, we, we looked at that and we looked at PDQ. That was the uh, Zorcer of Zoe uh, by Chad Undercoffer. Um, which was a great little system, very, very, very simple. And if if we'd used that, the game would have been about one thirtieth of the six hundred and thirty six pages it ended up being. 
but no, <laughs> we decided to rewrite Fate. We re- well, kind of rewrote Spirit of the Century that was a pretty big book in its own right and then added an enormous setting material. An enorm- we basically took all the cool ideas that were floating around for Fate, like um, you know, sort of plot, uh, threat generation, plot generation, um, plot stress, and um, and how to fight civilizations as well as fight characters, and put it all into this one massive book. And I was thinking, well, I just want to do the one book. I don't want to have millions of supplements. And uh, so it ended up being this huge, huge tome of, of space <laughs> opera goodness. Uh, and that was our first book. And um, you know, this is before the days of Kickstarter and they did a pre-order and, um, you know, I think it did all right for them. Uh, and then I went back to being a fashion designer for, you know, uh, totally. I'm losing track of your career. Yeah, it's, You've it's, done so many things. It's amazing. When, when I go back to school and, and give them careers lessons, sometimes the kids go, is it normal to have so many different jobs? And it's like, <laughs> no, not really. But I've, you know, I've always followed my heart, you know, um, at, there's a there's a guy called David Grant. He's a pop singer in the UK, and I, I road managed him for uh, when I first started in London, and uh, as being part of being an agent. And um, he said, Chris, there's six jobs in the world you can do really well, probably, and only one of them you will literally starve because it will make you so happy. You'll starve to do that job because it's so much fun. And eventually the money will come and the success will come. But if you follow your heart, and I just stuck with that all my life. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and it's, you know, and it's definitely starved a few times. <laughs> <laughs> you, so, you're not swimming in, in your swimming pool of money quite yet. Oh, I know. I mean, it, well, it's a bit like, you know, when I first worked in the music business, it's all very glamorous and great and free parties and guest lists and everything. But you get paid nothing. Right, you, <laughs> so you eat noodles it, when you get home. The, the buzz is, you know, um, you know, I would, when I first started, I would go, I was an A&R guy, so I'd go and see bands looking for cool bands to represent. And they would say, look, you can, you can expense your food. So I would go to this, like, place called Stockpot in Soho that's, like, five pounds, so now about $7. But back then, I guess, it, you know, it was probably the equivalent, you know, eight pounds. 10, 10, bucks, 10 bucks a three course meal and you sit really close to other people so you kind of meet other people and I'd eat that and then I'd go and see two or three bands and have a bottle of beer at every band so I'd get my money and travel travel card paid for so I would go out literally every night of the week seeing bands um, so, you could eat. <laughs> so I could yeah I wish pay for my food and I would find bands and I was, I was always there before the record companies were there because I was getting really good at finding stuff. And, um, yeah, anyway, so, uh, um, you know, I've done a few jobs that, you know, didn't really pay well and, and, uh, you know, including fashion to start with that, you know, it was our own little business. And it took a while to get going and, and then, um, Kickstarter came along and, uh, I'd got married and uh, my wife, Rita, said, look, you know, what do you want to do? Do you really want to do clothing? If you, you know, you, <laughs> do you want, you're do not you want to be an adult now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you want to grow up, get a life? <laughs> I just sold a load of painted Flames of War stuff for about 1500 bucks and paid for our first holiday. She couldn't believe it. She was funny? like, is this trash worth that much? It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> it is. Um, so we had a, you know, so that was like our first time. And then uh, in... Um, in, in, we went to Belarus because she's from Belarus and I met a guy who knew some companies that made plastic tanks for Russia and stuff. And we, I was like, mm, maybe I could do that. But 
it's diff, you know, it's not really a big market. And, um, and then came back to the UK. I'd, I'd recently read uh, At the Mountains of Madness oh, yeah. by H.P. Lovecraft. And of course, my weird war Sergeant Rock educated head has, had immediately gone, yeah, but what if there were Nazis at uh, right. Antarctica? So um, I started coming up with all these ideas and I dreamt up the name Acton Cthulhu. And, and just at that point, I met Sarah Newton, Who's uh, her company is Mind Gemma Press, and she had some adventures uh, set in World War Two with Cthulhu for the Call of Cthulhu system. And I was like, well, look, let's use that for this world, and I'll market it. And we got this guy Dim Martin to work on a royalty for layout, and Michal Cross, who's our uh, lead graphic designer now, um, joined as the graphic designer. We just did this first PDF called Three Kings. Um, uh, which sold a thousand copies because I used to run a PR company as well. <laughs> right. And we, we did the first internet PR in the UK for video games companies. So we were the first people talking to websites going, will you cover this? And, or here's a freebie to give away. And right. So, um, yeah, I managed to get a thousand people to buy it over the course of a year. And we launched a second one and that for sold a thousand. We built up a thousand <laughs> strong mailing list and then Kickstarter announced that they were going to launch in the UK. And uh, I'd, um, I was pretty much sick of the fashion game at this point. So um, a lovely guy called Paul Wedgwood, I knew, who had a company called Splash Damage that if anyone's played any of the multiplayer, Quake and, um, uh, gosh, uh, some of you, they're really good at multiplayer games. And he um, offered me some freelance work to help them do some merchandising. So, so I went to my company and said, look, I don't want to, work in the office anymore um i'm going to work from home for uh four days well i'm going to come into the office one day a week i'm going to work two days of the week for you and i'm going to do my own stuff for a couple of days a week and do all this you know some freelance uh work and and um start working on my own projects a bit more yeah and we thought we'd get like 15 20 dollars doing this you know an acton cthulhu book source book for Call of Cthulhu and Savage Worlds, and it did two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Unbelievable! Unbelievable. Uh, once you took into account the post, you know, back right. of it, and yeah, it was massive. And you know, halfway through, we hired Michal full time, and I was like, can't go back to t-shirts after this. This is like if I'm going to do a good proper job because we funded ten books and a bunch of clothing and miniatures and all kinds of stuff. So. Um, I, uh, yeah, so we went full time and that was the company. So we was me and Rita, Rita would, you know, send out PR emails and do the accounts and, uh, help with whatever needed doing. And I would, you know, coordinate all the production and stuff and creative work. And, um, and we, and that was 2013 when we uh, incorporated. As a company. So I'd be curious, Chris, I want to take a, a bit of a step back because you kind of just threw this out here, but I think it's significant. You're like, well, I wrote this and I, you know, I put this together and stuff like that. Like going back to like writing for the TV show and things like that. I mean, looking now as, you know, a decade or so later, looking back on it, um, where did your ability to just write and for people to go, this is good and we're going to use this. Where do you think <laughs> that question. came from? Well, I guess I was writing a lot of uh, role-playing stories and adventures as a kid. I also wrote lots of stories, endlessly like writing ideas for 
worlds and scenes and just concepts that I had. You know, I'd write lots of introductions to role-playing adventures and maybe never played them with people, just enjoyed doing it. Yeah. And, but I'd, I enjoyed writing lots of fiction. And, uh, and, you know, I've got a big fiction book I've been working on for, God, 15 years. That's, um, <laughs> I used to write on my Blackberry on the way to work. And um, so I guess that practice helped. And also, you know, I was lucky. I had a good education and, you know, did English literature to A-level and... And then just, you know, a lot of it is just practice. And yeah. and because we were writing background, we were basically writing an art role-playing game setting chapter. We weren't writing fiction right. so much for them. So we were writing the, well, this race comes from here and this is their ancient technology and this is the secrets and this is the plots and this is how it fits together. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that worked really well. And, um, you know, ever since I've... You know, I've enjoyed writing fiction and I'll often write when I create a role playing world, I create the main characters that are the Avengers of that world or the, you know, the Luke Skywalker. Who's the Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia of this story? Because people care about I think people I don't I can't just write. uh, Well, there's these knights over here and these elves over here and there's this war going on and there's this cool stuff going on. I have to start with the actual personal story. So you care about Star Wars because you love Han Solo and R2-D2 and Trupio and everyone. Um, and, it, and you also love the, the, the ships and stuff. But it's, of course, it's, it's an extension of that. It's the yeah. first film that got us to love that world. And uh, so I, you know, uh, Acton Cthulhu wasn't just another weird war uh, story. It was a story of six heroes who are pretty twisted. You know, you've got a a professor who can read Cthulhu mythos books and it doesn't send him mad. So what pact did he make in the past? You've got a French girl who's bound to a demon from Roman times because uh, it was the only way to stop it killing her. And, but now she has to feed it Nazi souls. She has to find Nazi souls every few days for it to feed on. Because she's of course part of the resistance. You've got a Russian Belarusian tank driver who's possessed by the spirit of the Russian motherland. And a bit like that bit in Hellboy, you know, when um, I've got the name, the girl who explodes with fire says, you better run. She's like that. Like, you know, when she lets go, this force of yeah. nature explodes out of her body and kills everything around her. So I love um, dark heroes where they're not just, oh, I, they're perfect good guys. They're, all of them have problems that in a normal world, the Allies would probably go, we're locking you up, we're going to throw away the key. <laughs> and actually, you're the bad guys. Um, right. So I love that sort of stuff. So anyway, so I start with characters that I think people are going to relate to and love and their trials and tell their story. And the world kind of fills in around it. So we're, we're working on a big new project we're unveiling this summer. Um, and I started with the heroes and their story um, and and now we're kind of dialing back and going, well, six months before that, who are the, what's the role-playing world of that? Yep. And um, how does that kind of sit in, you know, behind this story? So I think storyline has always been important for me. 
Very interesting and character driven, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that sounds to be like the, the driver for you. So let's go back in time now that um, you say, OK, Kickstarter's out there. We can use it here in the UK. Um, I'm going to go ahead and launch this Octoon uh, Cthulhu thing. We'll see if, it, you know, sell five, five, five thousand pounds worth of it and see what happens. Um, yeah. I w- how quickly did all of a sudden you log in and look and go, uh, holy crap, like this is a situation? Well, we yeah, we hit the target. The target, I think, was um, ten. Ten thousand pounds day one. Well, actually, I think yeah, I think it was yeah, it was like eleven hours or something. No, no, sorry, it was yeah, it was about about a day, and we were like, wow, okay, because <laughs> I'd just seen all these. This was like before the really big kickstarters. This is where there was like I think Numenera was the first like half a million dollar Kickstarter uh, for a role playing game line, and uh, Fate had a big one and you know but it was all around the two three five hundred thousand dollars and there was five of them and then there was lots that struggled to get you know i saw a lot of things i thought that's that's basically our thing i was doing a lot of market research comparing ourselves and going you know we're probably going to get ten or twenty thousand dollars i had no concept that we would do that well but of course i had a pr company before so i knew how to promote ourselves so i went out I'd been lucky to get a list of the press from Gen Con because if you exhibit at Gen Con, would it, if, it used to be if you exhibited at Gen Con, you'd get a copy of the press list, which is about 600 press emails uh, so that you as an exhibitor could um, use them to promote your products. So I got that and then I, I tracked every similar Kickstarter to us and, and Googled their, their title and found all the websites they appeared on went to those websites, found the editorial contact or the submission page and added it to a list. And then I did it again and I did it again and I did it again. I probably did it like 10, 15 times. And we ended up with over a thousand press. Which, so you're telling me that it actually took work to be successful. It wasn't yeah, just funny like... that. Yeah. <laughs> it actually was a real, yeah, a long, and you just kept thinking, surely this is enough. And I was like, no, I'm going to keep going. And then what we did is we emailed every single one personally. There was no blanket email. I mean, of right. course, we did once we got going. But though that first time we launched, it was like, hey, Craig, um, how's the podcast going? Um, uh, just want to let you know, I've just started this game and we're launching on Kickstarter. It's just come out and I would love you to have a look at it. And it's just the amount of responses we got was phenomenal and interviews and, you know, so much. Of course, people respond to a personal email more than they do a no question. What's yeah. clearly a newsletter. So that worked, and um, I was nearly going to do a book on how to market yourself for free, <laughs> which I wrote during that Kickstarter. And then we've been too busy in thirty, in 30 you know, uh, ten years since then to. <laughs> you put it. out a few things, and since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I keep looking back at the manuscript to go. I probably, could probably update that and stick it out, but. Uh, but I always talk about it at seminars I do and so try and give away free advice. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, you know, day one we were like, wow. And then over the next, you know, daily it was growing and we got to, you know, 50 grand, 100 grand, you know, eventually ended up 177,000. And then we got another 70,000 um, extra backers and afterwards. So. And Chris, at that time, I, I personally was not into role-playing games. I had taken the break that I had talked about uh, for other people um, and kind of missed this whole era 
of of which is really a very interesting era that has led to where we are today right this this window um mm. and the discovery of of tying you know kickstarter to to all of this and itch and just the creation of and the way to and the creation of pdfs and things just a new mm. way to, to to distribute these games um when you know you have the kickstarter out there and and you start hearing feedback come in so you start hearing the buzz right you've got all these people you've contacted people are talking about this there was obviously something different about what you had created and i'd be curious i mean it sounds like you knew what it was but what what were other people saying about octon cthulhu and was any of it surprising to you well i mean the because I didn't do it, I didn't just go, I've got a mad idea, I'm going to stick it up. I, I kind of did some research of like, World War II projects are really big in gaming on Kickstarter. Call of Cthulhu projects are generally pretty big. Savage Worlds, Savage Worlds projects are generally pretty big. Cthulhu Mythos stuff, we're generally pretty big. So I thought, okay, there's four, four um, uh, ticks in the box there for extra potential support we're hitting lots of you know uh, lots of different audiences right um so that was my kind of like okay and then i've got my pr experience and then i've got the it's a new project um and then i've got the audience we've already got the th- a sort of thousand two thousand mailing list we had so i thought okay um that gives us a really good chance and i nearly was going to do miniatures to start with <laughs> and then I thought, you know what? No, we need to get the world right before we do the miniatures. And then we ended up adding the miniatures in to the project. But I've still got in our Kickstarter projects, the very first one is the one I can't, I, I, I sort of said, because you can't delete it. It says, you know, remove this. And it's uh, the very first miniatures one we were going to do. Isn't and then that I fun? changed. So it's quite funny. Um, so it was more, I think, that I did that work beforehand to go, what, what, what are all the things I can do to make this as surefire success as, as can be? And for success for me was getting $10,000. Sure. Uh, because that meant I could probably spend a day a week working, in it, working from home with my wife. So. But, but I guess what I'm wondering is, um, you know, you've reached out to all of these media outlets, um, for lack of a better word, and you, you were getting feedback, right? You were people were talking about the game. They were saying, this is what I, this is what I'm reading. This is what I'm seeing. Um, and, and, you know, that would be in my and if, I, if I'm wrong, tell me that would be the first time you got any type of larger feedback on what you had created. And I'd be curious yeah. to know what that feedback was and what your reaction to it was. I mean, we'd obviously started talking about uh, the game in the run-up, the year run-up to it, uh, through the Three Kings adventures. And the whole pitch was, Acton Cthulhu, the secret war has begun. So the whole pitch was, this isn't, and there'd been the Savage Worlds weird war role-playing game. Right. That's vampires and werewolves and monsters, zombies in World War II. And there's lots of Nazi zombie movies. So my thing was like, okay, there's that, but there's, there's no deep story behind that. Acton Cthulhu, take, that is just one little fragment of this whole epic universe. And we're going to take you on this deep dive into World War II, into all the secret bases and the secret plots and these strange organizations that were fighting each other so that the history books were written the way you know them to be. Interesting. Um, and so we got, yeah, we, I mean, we had lots of great feedback on, oh, this is new. So, you know, of course, oh, so it's 
Call of Cthulhu and World War Two. You know, why had no one thought about that before? You know, so we were lucky to be the first people uh, to do it. And, and at the same time, Cubicle Seven uh, launched a um, kind of Cthulhu. Um, I forgot the name now. Cthulhu World War Two project as well. So you know, it was good timing. And yeah. uh, you know, by by having Call of Cthulhu and Savage Worlds rules in the book it meant we hit the kind of pulp players who are at one end of the spectrum and the, the Call of Cthulhu, everything's dangerous, you're going to go mad and die. I hate my character crowd. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we were able to pull in a lot of people. And, yeah, I mean, the, the response was great. You know, it was yeah. like you've got something that's different. But, I mean, it wasn't so big a response that we were like, oh, my God, we're going to do so much on this. I was, I was still thinking you know we'll be lucky to do 10 grand <laughs> Isn't and it's funny? gonna be hard work so well i would imagine too um and, and you created it right so it didn't surprise you but i would imagine um it, it must have been validating i'll say that you know weird weird war is not a new idea <laughs> that that predated yeah. Octum cthulhu by a long shot even yeah. within the industry right people were mm. already playing games role-playing games like that but for it to be identified as this is different that must have been very validating for you to hear yeah. that well and, and it was just all the people the 1700 backers that came out and put their money down and, and a lot yeah. of money down as well like um uh, to say, you know, we want this. So that that yeah. was amazing. And and uh, I remember Rita. I think Rita, my wife, had just been helping and thinking. You know, he'd probably go back to the t-shirt company, and just couldn't believe it. Like, what do you mean people are paying this much money? And where's it all coming from? And why do people want to spend so much money on this your mad idea? Um, and and yeah, she's now head of operations, and yeah. you know, helps me look after forty people. Isn't so it's incredible how it's how it's grown and um uh but you know so that yeah i mean it was probably one of the best moments of our life was that kind of re dawning realization over the last couple of weeks of like oh my gosh our life has changed yeah you know? yeah now did you know at that point like this is what i'm going to do this is my go forward now or was it like you know we're going to fulfill this and you know then we'll see what happens or did you know like this is modifius is a thing now yeah i think well modifius was a thing as a brand um right but i think yeah we'd uh, we'd already um started the company because we knew we needed the company to to run it um but it's um I think you know the second week of the project was like this. This is much bigger than we thought it was. Yeah. And I think by the third week, I was I was saying to my company, you know, the company, I'm guys, I'm I'm going to leave. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, you know, I'll help you transition, but you don't need me. And, yeah. Uh, um, so that was fine. And uh, yeah, and and we were making plans. And I'd already started thinking about uh, okay, we've got to deliver this, but also the money will run out at some point. And also we can't just use the Kickstarter money to live off. But of course, but we budgeted it to have some money of that, which I always say people, you have to pay yourselves, pay yourselves enough money so that you don't have to get a bank loan to pay your mortgage. You have to pay yourselves. Don't be a cheap role-playing creator. Now it's fine if you just, you've got a job and you just want to do this for a bit of fun and you don't need to make any money and you want to pay everyone great money that's great but if you want to set it up as a company 
and pay people professionally, then you've got to budget it properly and um, go, what, what can we afford to pay people that's fair? What, what do we have to pay ourselves for the duration of the period to guarantee this comes out? How are we going to get it into shops so there's more money coming in from all this work we've done? Who's going to distribute it? Um, and then at some point, we have to have another project because the money has to keep going if we're going to employ people. We can't... And there's a runway, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people, I mean, we, we've been late with lots of projects. We've gone, oh, why are you starting another project? You know, you should finish this one. It's like, well, okay, but I, we employ people, right? And if, <laughs> yeah. if I said to you... Um, I'm really sorry that project you're working on hasn't finished so we can't pay you next month because we can't finish the you know we've got to finish the project first we're not going to start another project that will bring in money to pay your wages so it's really unfair so you've got you, you know as a business owner you've got to think how do I look after everyone how do I protect people's wages that protect their jobs and how do we also get stuff finished you know right um right. You know, it's and not so just you and your wife at the kitchen table at this point. Yeah, no. So, you know, within, uh, you know, within, by the second year, it was like four of us and, and also lots of freelancers. So, again, freelancers are relying on your money because you said, oh, I've got loads of artwork for you to do. I've got loads of writing work for you to do. So, you know, we did Mutant Chronicles year two. So, I, you know, within the year one, I was already talking to them going, well, let's reboot that and get the license and, you know, we'll start a big project. Uh, and, you know, that was 20 books i think so it was an insane <laughs> kickstarter which we're still selling um and uh you know we kind of you know grew from there and so i'm all you always have to think ahead at yeah. some point the projects that are doing really well for us now won't be doing as well and so what can i i have to think about it now because to get it to the point where it could generate money you've got to sort of start bringing it into the system so when you so. look back, Chris, do you think that your, your desire to chase passion, to jump around and try all of these different careers, do you think that that prepared you to be smart oh, about God. this entire process? Yeah, 100%. Because if I look back, I remember doing jobs going, wow, you know, that was just a waste of time. And actually, every single job I did prepared me for Modiphius. <laughs> so something. everything, nothing. And there was, you know, there was a company that went bust you know um for uh, but but actually that process moved me into another job and then learned everything that all those jobs i did were like well this you know you know the event management the marketing the design the you know our fashion company we would have to do uh, about 200 new SKUs twice a year 400 <laughs> 400 new products and that might be a belt but you, a belt is like well what's the pattern on the belt and what's yeah. the leather and what's the material and what's the buckle and a shirt is well what's this what how much is the stitching it's incredibly complex right so when I came into role-playing people were like oh you funded 10 books how are you ever going to do it it's like trust me this, this is easy this is this is like me having a holiday from life you know <laughs> And then, and also because we did the bags, we did this beautiful bag in China and t-shirts and, and people are like, oh, it's so complicated. It's like, yeah, but I, you know, that's my career. So um, it was, uh, yeah, relatively easy going. And, and so as, as we added more and more, you know, in my head, it was like, well, this is quite normal, really. Um, sure. Luckily, we have a very big team to handle all the mad ideas now and we try and <laughs> try and keep it under control. So. Oh, that's, that's incredible. It, um, 
yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like as you were walking me through it, Chris, I was like, oh, I'm starting to, I'm starting to make the connections, you know, as you talk through it. So guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we've kind of understood now um, how Modiphius came to be, um, why it, I mean, it's obvious, much more obvious to me now the success that Modiphius has had and how it has gone from nobody knew what it was to now one of, if not the major players um, in the industry. Um, but now I wanted to also talk to Chris a little bit about systems. We've talked about worlds. Let's talk about systems. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So I've gotten a strong sense, Chris, of what drives you from a storyteller standpoint. Um, I've got a strong sense of the origins of that, um, kind of your approach to that, your methodology of it, the character, you know, the character centric storytelling. Um, I, I do want to talk about mechanics a little bit. Um, so it sounds like you were also as a kid fiddling around with mechanics and and, you know, piecing that together uh where is the origins of the mechanics that really have become signature from Odiphius? where where can we go back and start to trace where th those came from well we developed our 2d20 system for the mutant chronicles game right so our our second kickstarter um and i you know i've always fiddled around with mechanics you know it's um yeah i'm not a big fan I, i'm not big in maths but there's something about you know the what dice you roll and the you know what is the process of the mechanics that makes it fun and replicates the system you know the experience and um so we knew we had to, we wanted to come up with our own system um you know going forward because you know it's great working with you know chaosium and call of cthulhu and savage worlds but you know you're paying a royalty you've got to get approvals we just want to do our own thing and and um control it so um, I remember originally uh, it was five d twenty, and I was um, I was in uh, my dad had this little cottage in France. We were there on holiday, and I was rolling dice, imagining this big fight scene between Algaroth, this kind of evil god in the Mutant Chronicles universe, this sort of big general, and a whole bunch of heroes, and they were rolling five d twenty, getting successes and spending them on loads of cool stuff, like doing all these awesome things. 
and Michal Cross, uh, our designer, is also a systems guy. And, uh, you know, we would talk about lots of ideas and go, well, that's really crazy because, you know, you, you need a scale. So right. we kind of got back to 2D20 as a starting point. But one thing I've learned is it's great to, um, to come up with the ideas, but there's always someone better than you. And if you're going to do a really good job, um, find someone who's better than you at what you do and help them do it. So we, we found Jay Little. He'd obviously worked on uh, FFG's Star Wars game and X-Wing and uh, pitched an idea. said, look, we've got this, these, this bare bones concept of how 2D20 works. And the, kind of, the whole idea was that you, you roll 2D20 um, versus your combination of stat and skill, trying to get under the total and then there was the idea that you could buy extra dice. Um, so you could get up to 5d20, right. but at, at cost, you know, that would cost you a resource that the GM would get called Threat or Doom, I think in, uh, uh, in Mutant Chronicles. And the, the GM can spend that to do fun things to you. <laughs> and, um, and, and so Jay basically helped us turn it into professional, professionally yeah. written gaming system and and we really needed that and and yes we probably could have done it and it would have been a bit broken and maybe would have been fixed after a bunch of errata but it, you know again it's i'm a big believer in don't be too precious you know know the limits you've got go and get help and get the best help you can to create something awesome and we would you know we'd been paid a lot of money 150 grand to create the Mutant Chronicles role-playing line. So let's pay someone some money to help us create the structure for that. And then, you know, everyone, that will make um, the development of the, of the game much easier. The, then the tale of that is that uh, one of the writers uh, I hired to work on some of the books was a guy called Nathan Dowdle, who'd been working on FFG's um, uh, 40K role-playing game. And, you know, um, was, you know he, he was a fan of Mutant Chronicles as well. And he just ended up doing a lot of system stuff. And Nathan's now our lead designer. So he's kind of taken on the helm of, um, you know, being the guardian of 2D20 internally. And uh, another guy, Ben uh, Beaton, who's uh, also one of our writers, who's also worked on Mutant Chronicles and Infinity. And he's very much a kind of stats guy that kind of helps with the probabilities and things when we check stuff out so um you know nathan's done a fantastic job of of reinventing 2d20 every time we need it and we've been really lucky and, and flexible because we change it. it it's the core is like roll two 20-sided dice and try and get under a number and you can buy more of them and you can spend those successes to do cool stuff but sometimes uh you might add two attributes together in the case of John Carter. And you can choose which ones. Do you charge someone with, uh, you know, daring and um, something else? I can't remember the name of the stat. But like, whereas the, the princess might shout at them and use daring, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and have the equal, equal same effect of making the enemy lose. It's very um, unique. Yeah. And then Star Trek uh, did it slightly differently. June is doing it a bit differently as well. It's a bit like a, a range of cars. You know, Volkswagen have basically an engine that works a similar way. They've got a system and they change the engine a little bit for every car 
but it's basically a car on four wheels, you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, so well, what's we, interesting to me about it, yeah. Chris, though, is that, that, that the way that you piece those together, right. To come up with the target, to come up with what you're shooting for. And this, now again, this is making more sense now that I understand your background better is still narratively driven, right? So you're having the mechanics drive the narrative and yeah. th this is how the princess is going to do it. This is how the John Carter is going to do it. This is how yeah, the yeah. pirate was going to do it. And you piece it together and it's, it's, it's super vivid in, in, in Star Trek, uh, the way mm -hmm. that that negotiation between the person running the game and the players works out. Um, uh, so Jay Little's been on the show, you know, an extremely clever guy, extremely yeah. clever guy and a super nice guy to boot. But um, what I would like to figure figure out is what condition was it in when you said here jay this is what we're thinking versus what you got back um i think we had like pages of of like uh you know the the rough systems like turn order and actions and you know the concepts of dice and stuff but he really chopped it up and and gave it a you know um a lot a lot better structure you know yeah. we had some mad ideas in there that went out and new stuff that he brought in um so it you know of course it went through iterations but you know we ended up with a professional role-playing system that someone would pay money for you know <laughs> now, so, and that's what he was good at yeah obviously so i'd be curious as jay was tossing things back and forth and iterating for you this is before play testing really right where he mm, was really yeah. trying to gronk gronk the mechanics of it was, can you think of something or a few things maybe um, that he came back with and you're like, oh, wow, never would have thought of that or that's really interesting. Did he surprise um, you? If I'm honest, I don't remember. That's okay. Yeah, that's it was, okay. Yeah, it, it was, uh, it's been a, a lot of, uh, it's been lot, a little bit of time. A lot of water under the bridge since. Yeah. yeah. But it was, yeah. you know, it was, uh, I think the process was a few months, you know, three or four months before we then dived into full on play testing. Um, and then we kind of took it over with the playtesting side and, you know, we talked a bit, talked to him about feedback and stuff and, um, you know, but his, his job was like turn our crazy ideas into a sensible idea that, you know, that, that works, you know, not just, well, we've got some cool ideas for a role playing game and, you know, and, uh, and that really, you know, really helped us. So, you know, it was well worth getting him involved. Yeah. Now, maybe another way to phrase what I'm thinking about is what do you remember his reaction? Right. So you say, hey, Jay, we'd like to do this for you. Here's kind of what we're thinking. You hand it over. And was Jay like, oh, this is interesting. I've got some ideas. Or Jay was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I think he was probably very polite. Um, I'm sure he was like, this is a hot mess, uh, but I probably can fix it. <laughs> it's a good thing you hired me is what he's thinking. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, you made the right decision, guys. You know. Oh, that's funny. That's and funny. Here's my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked um, about just, and we've been hinting at um, all of these games that uh, have come out of Modifia. So I want to take a quick break and I want to come back and I want to talk about them because each of them is unique, um, though that there's a, you've already heard the kind of a through line in thinking and mechanics between a lot of them. So let's take a quick break. Let's come back and let's talk about all these, all of these IPs as well. So we'll yeah, be right yeah. back. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS, what kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. 
So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So we have Octon Cthulhu. Then we've got Mutant Chronicles comes out of that. These are original worlds. These are original concepts or your take on, you know, other things. But they were they were distinctly yours. What was the first time where you said, I'm going to take my licensing experience, my marketing experience, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to grab a property and bring it into bring it into the uh, the fold? Well, that was Mutant Chronicles. Oh, you know what? I guess I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I knew the people who had the rights because I'd been talking to them about clothing just a couple of years ago about doing t-shirts because they also own the rights to Conan. Um, and, uh, and we, you know, been friendly. And when the games company has started, I was like, oh, actually we could do something with that. And, and then, you know, I also, uh, pitched for Conan. Um, and they were like, okay, let's get Mutant Chronicles first. And, and then Mutant <laughs> Chronicles was do. a success. And then, yeah. We also pitched and got the rights to Thunderbirds, the British TV puppet show about you know international rescue, and we teamed up with Matt Leacock to do a board game based on that, um, and that that did really well. That was like quarter of a million pounds, and uh, uh, and Matt did a fantastic job, and obviously he was fresh from pandemic and you know lots of success, um, and then we picked up Conan and did that, and then Infinity, you know, which is the um, uh, you know, based on the big miniatures game, yep. and then Star Trek, and uh, you know, uh, and Star Trek we got because of all the other licenses because we could show to CBS that you know we could treat the brand well, that we could get a lot of you know we do a really good job and it was high quality, and then we picked up John Carter of Mars, uh, which I'd been trying to get for ages, but they were tied up with their deal with Disney, yep. and then we just got lucky, um, happened to. Uh, well, Rita um, met the um, uh, the guy from the estate, and we got chatting, and just you know, right time, right place. And I'd also known the people at Bethesda for a few years, talking about clothing, for, you know, from the past. And you know, at some point, I had a light bulb moment. Where we're going, wait a minute, I should talk to Bethesda because they've got Fallout and Elder Scrolls and all that cool stuff. And and, um, you know, I got talking to them and, you know, it was never, they didn't have a licensing team. They had a marketing manager who really wasn't interested in licensing. And um, eventually they got a licensing guy, uh, this lovely guy, Mike. Um, and I remember him calling me out of the blue and I was walking in Hyde Park with Rita and it was a sunny day. I was like, oh, hi. Um and uh, uh, so, yeah, so the, my idea was Fallout Warhammer. And he was like, sure, okay, sounds good. I was like, oh, my God. Um, anyway, he was really busy, and it took, you know, a year, year and a half before we could get to a, you know, we would, he had time and we could get in a you know, basic agreement. And um, uh, that deal happened, and, then, uh, and that was for a miniatures game. So suddenly yeah. I'd committed ourselves. We were a role-playing games company and we had done miniatures for Star Trek and, and uh, for John Carter and, uh, and also acting Cthulhu. And, 
And so that doubled the size of the company because we had to get um, people to handle production and painting and sculpting and briefs and, oh gosh, everything. And uh, demoing miniatures is a whole different thing because yeah. role-playing games, you can send someone the PDF and go, hey, run this at a convention for me. Uh, miniatures, <coughs> excuse me, they've got to paint the miniatures. They've got to get some scenery made to make it look good or you've got to help them. So it's um, different. And we know you, you weren't the one doing the painting. No, definitely <laughs> not. No, no. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a, um, a very short-lived miniatures game if I did. <laughs> so I'd be curious for people listening that obviously have not done what you've done. Um, what is something that, that they don't know about this process, that they don't understand about taking an IP? And, and we're talking about big IPs now. We're talking about mm. Star Trek. We're talking about Conan. What, what's a reality about that process that, that you think would surprise people? It's a lot of work. It takes a long yeah. time to get to the point where you're holding a contract. Yeah. And a lot of talking and of reassuring them that you know what you're doing and like, so how are you going to do it? Show me something you've done. You need to be able to show them that you can create quality work. Right. Uh, and so that's why having your own baby, your own project first is great because it's like, look what we did. We can make mm -hmm. a great looking product. So your first, you know, your first project is your calling card for everyone else. Um, you need to be really good at sticking to their brand. You can't just go, oh, I've got this great idea to put guys in big suits of power armor in Star Trek because that'll be cool. Yeah. No, it's Star Trek doesn't have that. You know, other worlds do, uh, yeah. but Star Trek doesn't. So you've got to prove that you know the world or find someone who's really loves that world. And you've got to be able to prove that you can make it a commercial success. There's no point. They don't want to hear, oh, I'm going to do a Kickstarter. And if it's a success, we'll make the game. They want to hear, right. I'm making this game. Yep. I might use Kickstarter as a marketing platform to sell more product, but I'm making this game. And it is going in to go into shops. There will be distribution for it. You know, they want their brand to be bigger in retail. And you getting their game into retailers and getting it into the hands of people around the world is, is what they want to hear. They want to hear that you're going to pay them a load of money because it's not worth their lawyer's time to do the contract with you otherwise. <laughs> so if you're going after a you know, if you're going after a tiny creator owned license where it's just them on the end of the phone going, yeah, sure, let's do the deal. I'll, you know, send me a contract that you've done, then fine. But most cases, when you're talking about a license, you're talking to an agency or the brand themselves, and they've got a legal team, and they're yep. going to want to know, uh, you know, what are your terms? How are you going to release it? What territories do you want? What languages do you want? Hmm. Um, how much percentage of your net receipt are you going to pay? And how much of, and typically what happens is they go, well, how much money are you going to sell? How much money are you going to make over three years? Let's say that's half a million. Right. Okay. So if the royalty is 10%, which is often, the, you know, royalty, good royalty, that's $50,000. Um, we want you to guarantee half of that, $25,000. And we'd like half of that up front, oh $12,500. Because but this is big, you know, you are yeah. getting their brand, their fans, yeah. their artwork, their people. That's the cost. But, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be willing um, you know, to put down some good money. So if you're guaranteeing $25,000 over three years, you know, you might, you probably start with $10,000 down and maybe $5,000 
what we call a minimum guarantee every year. So whatever happens, you have to give them another $5,000 of that minimum guarantee each year. So you've got to sell. And if you yeah. don't sell anything in that year, you're still paying them that money. But if you don't, if you're not selling, there's no point. Why have you got the license? You know. So once you've got a license, you now have this axe over your head of like, you have to go and sell this. But if you want something that badly and you want, you know, you're also using it to market your company. Like when we got, you know, Conan was a big thing for our company. We're like, hey, we've got the Conan license. Suddenly lots of fans who we've never spoken to are shopping on our web store. Like, oh, oh, you've got this thing called Acting Cthulhu. That yeah. looks cool, you know. So it's it's both promotion for your business. It brings you new fans. It you know if you've got access to artwork, it's great. But you know with Star Trek, we could have used all the stills, but um, we wanted to do all new artwork um, rather than have people. You know, previous games had used the photographs from the shows, and we wanted to see people doing stuff in Star Trek uniforms that you've never seen on TV, leaping over burning canyons and you know having fights in star trek already you know all, all kinds of stuff so um sure um you know so that cost us and you know so you've got to be willing to spend the money to make a licensed brand really work so it is a lot of work it's a lot of cash commitment it's a lot of um um you know you've got to be controlled you've got to ensure that you you know you've got to be good at admin because they you have to get everything approved Every piece of art has to be approved. Everything you write has to be approved. And they will own all the art that you've paid for at the end of the project. And all the writing except the rules. Your, the rules are yours, but they will own right. all the content that you write. Isn't that something? Is, so, yeah, but, it's a lot. So, I mean, you, you, I'm stressed out hearing the story, let alone running the company. Um, so I'd be curious, Chris, and you may not be able to answer this, but it, it, now looking back over the, you know, the decade or so that that you've been doing this, it, has there been a point where you turned to your wife and went, uh, we may be a little bit over our head here, or we may have bitten off a little bit more than we could chew, or were you guys always confident every step of the way? I was. I think everyone who works for us has probably like gone, you're mad. You're never going to get this all done. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, I've, I've never been, because um, I love doing it, and, I, and my philosophy is only work on projects you love. Don't take on something that you think you'll make lots of money with, but you don't love, because you're going to be doing it. You're going to have to cancel going out on Saturday night to see your friends to work on that project because something comes up. Right it better be something you love because otherwise you're going to hate yourself and you could earn more money doing another job with something that you also don't love, you know? Well, and we're coming right back to the advice you got when you were yeah, uh, the exactly. agent there. So I've turned down some big tabletop projects because I knew I didn't love it and right. more other people loved it better. And, you know, I've gone after projects that maybe weren't as big, but because I love them and I knew you we would do okay if not better and maybe um, in some cases we've done what much better than we thought and uh, you know me and rita aren't in it for the money we're not here you know um we're not going off to our yacht every summer and we're not looking to buy a yacht or anything it's you, we you know i mean she's not a gamer she's she you know loves being good she's at the her sensible job. one yeah she is very <laughs> sensible one um and you know i you know i do it because i love the creation of worlds and storylines and 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 it's great seeing the people in our business you know grow with us and yeah and stuff and um you know talking to people in the industry so 
it's um you know it's uh you you just really got to focus on you know the money will come at the end if you focus on what you what you care about yep so I'd be curious, um, Chris, when did you expand beyond um, and taking advantage of the logistics? So uh, one of my purchases, I've purchased many things through you, but one of them was b- buying uh, Forbidden Lands from, oh, yeah. um, from Free Lagan um, because it, it, it was the, the best place for me to get it, right? And and I'd, I'd already ordered stuff through you, so I'd ar- you'd already built enough credibility with me that I knew if I sent you money, it wouldn't yeah. be six months later before I got it. So I had, sure. as soon as I knew you had it, that's where I went. I, okay, that's cool. who I bought it through. So when did that start to happen where you started um, selling stuff that you that wasn't Modifius? Well, I, I, I knew Cubicle 7 did very well um, doing distribution for other publishers so or other creators where they created a book and, and Cubicle 7 would print the book and distribute it. So what we did is go, well, okay, um, let's start off with people who've got a book or are about to make a book and we can help them put it through our sales channels uh, because we've already got the distribution, we've got the sea freight, we've got the logistics set up, we've got our website. So we did a, you know, we worked out a fair deal with people, and we helped um, Free League launch Mutant Year Zero was the first game they did, uh, which is also with Cabinet Entertainment, which is also um, uh, the same people who look after Conan and Mutant Chronicles. Wow! So. Um, they, um, you know, we worked with them and actually kind of co-published and, and co-funded the print run and they did a Kickstarter and we worked together. Um, and then, you know, we started to do more stuff where simply, you know, they would go, okay, we're going to be printing Tales from the Loop. How many do you think you'll need? And we said, okay, well, we'll need X thousand, you know, for distribution. And then, you know, at some point they went, actually, we can do this ourselves now. There's no point paying you the cut. And it's like, yeah, great. It's brilliant that they've grown that far. But we still sell their stock through our website. (coughs) Excuse me. So, um, and, you know, we're still friends and give advice and share new printers and things like that. (laughs) That's great. Um, But we, you know, there's lots of other companies like Cult and... um, um uh electric bastion land was a new one i found um so kind of companies where they've got some stock but they're just not big enough to get distribution and we can handle that because we're doing it all day long and it's right. relatively easy for us to help and of course we've got you know 180,000 strong email list and um you know big social media so we can give them a bit of exposure and help them get more sales and maybe they would on their own and now we're starting to we've got a new thing called via modifius which is where we find a cool project and actually at the moment it's all solo narrative based war games. So it's games that I've found, uh, indie games that have something unique or special about them where I've said, okay, we're going to do a new edition of it for, for distribution. So we actually kind of did the first version of that was the retail edition of Rangers of Shadow Deep by uh, Joe McCulloch who, did, who designed Frostgrave. And, and he was selling that in um, print-on-demand on drive through. And we were like, look, let's do a new edition, beautiful layout, um, and get it into stores because there's a big market and that's still selling. And then we did the same thing with uh, Ivan Sorensen, who, um, who's got a company called Nordic Weasel, and he, he does a lot of games that are 5X from Y, so five parsecs from home, five leagues from the borderlands. So we took um, five parsecs from home and did a beautiful new retail, retail edition all gorgeous artwork, great layout, and it's um, where is it? It's here. 
just going to stores. There's little beautiful. It's it's gorgeous. It's an absolutely book. gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a RPG light solo war game. So, and it procedurally generates a campaign around you. You've got like six six crew, and the whole story unfolds. It's brilliant. Uh, I play it with Star Wars micro machines on a little tiny table. <laughs> brilliant that's fantastic that's don't fantastic. have to paint them you see they're all pre-painted <laughs> and that's the key that's yeah. the key <laughs> and, yeah and you've got your little micro micro machine ships lying around oh, and stuff so that's um, great um, but no yeah, it makes so got, it makes a whole lot of sense you're taking advantage of the infrastructure that you had to build to support yourself um and at the same time empowering um other creators and it also sounds like and correct me if i'm wrong it gives you an opportunity being chris birch to go out and go that's cool i want to be a part of this or i want to i want I want to upgrade what you're doing because I because I'm passionate about what you're making. Yeah, and also we want to be known as the home of um, well um, storytelling on the tabletop is the kind of the, the phrase we've come up with. But particularly with miniature games, um, I'm not interested in tournament games. There's plenty out there. There's no point competing with Games Workshop or Privateer Press or Fancy Flights X-Wing. You know, they all do it really, really well. And if a store is going to do a tournament, they're probably going to do X-Wing mm-hmm. or a GW tournament. So mm-hmm. do something different. I always love being going against the, the tide. And so we've been, you know, co-op board games have been big. Um, solo war games have always been a thing, but they, of course, exploded during uh, lockdown. So we've really, you know, all our Elder Scrolls and Fallout miniature games have a big solo side to them, which is one of my conditions for doing them at the beginning. And in, and so with all these new um, solo war games, we're going, we're, we're putting a flag in the sand. It's like, we're going to be the home of, if you want to play solo or co-op, um, go to Modifius. come to us, because we're going to have yeah. all the awesome little innovative games that do everything a bit differently, but we're going to really encourage people to come to us and, and host those games. So. Well, and is you know, obviously I was a consumer um, of you before we ever started talking about you coming on the show. And um, here's a little bit of smoke for you to put up your butt. Um, it, it, for me, as a consumer, I knew, and that's why I couldn't couldn't spend my money fast enough buying free league stuff through you, is because there's there's a reliability and a certain level of quality. I knew because I hadn't, you know, I th- I thought I wanted to play Forbidden Lands, but I knew if Chris was carrying it, like. I'm going to enjoy this. There's going to be, I'm going to get a quality product from it. Um, and, and that's really, that's neat for you, Chris, to have over this time to have these passions and these loves to then turn into a, a, a brand of quality, um, and both in content and in material. So congrats Thanks. on that. That's a big Thank deal. You. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's been my deal. goal is that anything we sell should be something I love. Right. So if you, right. if you know, you see it on our shop, you know, I like it. Yeah. Yep, and if and if you and if you if you're not like Chris and you don't have the same taste as Chris has, and you know you don't want to buy, it. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's funny. Um, so, guys, we're going to take one more break, and I'm going to take full advantage of the fact that Chris has been neck deep in this industry for the past ten years. And I want to talk about the industry itself and kind of what his thoughts are on how we've gotten where we are over the last ten years because a lot's changed, and maybe even try to pick his brain and see um, what's on the other other side of things. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to 
right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway... Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So, obviously, you've been living and breathing tabletop gaming. Uh, for, you know, at least the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, it's been a formative, it's been a revolutionary 10 years, both in role playing and miniature gaming and board gaming. So much has changed from when you started, Chris. And now looking back at it, do you have a sense of what, what, what maybe the historians will say about mm-hmm. this last 10 years? What have you seen? Um, let's use your narrative skills. What have you seen happening over the last 10 years that's interesting? Well, I suppose... Um... I mean, the you know Kickstarter has allowed a huge uh, increase in the quality of games. You know, whether it's b- beautiful-looking role-playing games with shock horror color arts and uh, great layouts, <laughs> and board games that are just mind-blowing. You know, mind-blowing levels of content. Yeah. The you know you've seen the um, you know I was always a solo gamer, and so I think it. I think COVID um, obviously has helped, but it was a growing trend, you know, with co-op board games. It was always like, can you play this co-op? Can you play this co-op? And I think the idea of playing together is way more fun than playing against someone and that it allows you to tell much more stories and storytelling has become bigger. You know, again, how often do you hear this is a narrative game uh, for a board game, let alone a war game? So that trend, I think, was something I saw coming, which is why we invested heavily in solo gaming, you know, solo war games. Um, And, you know, it's it's a tricky thing is that we, you know, we've, there was the big uh, flood of D20 products that kind of killed um, D20 back in the day. How many companies went bust? And a few companies with it. Yeah, for sure. And in a sense, we've had Kickstarter's given us a flood of games, but they're all, most of them are great. It's not that there's a lot of trash. There's a lot of great games. And the problem we've got, and this is the industry, has been a problem for the last few years, is there's too much. There's too many great games. Shops don't know what to stock. Distributors don't care. No distributor out there goes... I love your game. I'm going to take 10,000 of this and I'm going to sell it because it's beautiful. Because if they miss it, they've got another great game tomorrow and on Friday and on next Monday. There's like every few days, there's another game soliciting that is amazing and that some of the customers want. 
Um, so it's very hard for distributors to keep games in quantity to support retail because there's too many. I mean, there's yep. something like 50 gaming products coming out every week. Unbelievable. And if, wow. you're a, if you're a distributor that's got to carry that in bulk, that's really hard. If you're a retailer, I remember when, you know, the, the new hotness shelf at a retailer was like kind of there for a month. And now and it's changing. Four boxes. Yeah, yeah. And now it's changing every week. Yeah. Um, and um, <clears throat> so that, that's a real problem. And of course, Kickstarter is also, whilst, you know, it's, it, it's contributed to this situation. I'm not saying it's a problem because we're, sure. we're in a golden age of having so much choice. Um, but, you know, you've got a lot of companies now that only sell through Kickstarter because they can only afford to sell the big $150 box of miniatures because there's no way they can sell it through stores. And they've got a big audience that buy direct. So why wouldn't they take that margin? I saw a, a, an interesting comment the other day uh, on, uh, I think it was the board game trading site on Facebook. How many of you have found that great board game that you've been dreaming of all your life? And it does everything. It ticks every box. And it's amazing. And the miniatures are incredible. And, it's, and the rules are so great. And you love playing it. And now you've got a new one. And that's really amazing. And that's really great. And it yeah. ticks all the boxes. And that one that you answered all your prayers is on, the, is on the shelf, gathering dust. And we've just got too much. And maybe COVID was a bit good in a sense because it, everyone scaled back their releases. We had to. And we scaled back our releases. Um, and um, it, you know, it kind of you know, made everyone think. And now we've got this like triple the cost of shipping out of China on sea freight. That's making everyone think twice about China production. Uh, but there isn't huge, you know, you cannot just go and make a board game in America because it, it would, your $150 game will suddenly be $500. Your $50 exactly. game will be $100, you know, yep. if, uh, if you're lucky. So, uh, and with games becoming more mass market, they're, they, they need to be cheaper. And, you know, you know, you've got Target and Walmart starting to stock tabletop games yep. in bulk now, and they're not going to pay, you know, for a $150 game. And, you know, and I, I love co-op dungeon crawl games. You know, they're probably one of the biggest genre. We all love that new shiny. And I love seeing the new one and the cool new rules it does. And, a different way of doing it and had the different story it can give us. But I'm also sometimes despair at, and it's another big box of plastic miniatures. And we're guilty of that too. You know, we just did Siege of the Citadel, which is like <laughs> you have no ground boxes to stand this here, high. Chris. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> um, but um, it's just so much. And then you think, do I really need another box of fantasy miniatures? Yeah, no. <laughs> but, you know, we, it is a bit sad that we, you know, and, and it's not like the plastic's going to waste and it's getting chucked in the ocean because people right. don't throw away boxes of plastic miniatures. But um, it is a bit sad that we're in this state where there's too, too much good stuff and we actually aren't playing the great games that we've got. Um, and, but um, you can't just tell new creators, sorry, we can't right. make new games. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, I don't, there isn't an answer really, uh, but we, I have a feeling, you know, COVID might have been the start of something and maybe increasing conditions in China will make it harder. But <clears throat> I feel like there needs to be uh, less product because well, it's not it's, sustainable. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there are more and more people buying games. So in a yeah. sense, you know, the Kickstarters get bigger. I mean, look at the uh, the Witcher Kickstarter. It's, what, three and a half million pounds. The, how, the last month, there, uh, there was... Um, uh renegade uh no not not renegade another company did the um uh there was a million dollars for a solo game on kickstarter incredible <laughs> and uh you know it's been quite a few really big kickstarters over the last few months that just you're just like oh my god can it really get bigger yes it can and so clearly there's a lot of people out there there's more and more people i think coming into the industry so yeah maybe it is somewhat sustainable uh and and you know the tabletop industry is a fraction of the right. big wider world. Yeah. You know, you could you could double the size of the table industry and it would still be a minuscule part of the, you know, global industry. It is um it's interesting as you mentioned that, Chris, because uh in my interview with Steve Jackson, that was the big thing that he said. And he didn't say it from necessarily um, you know, there's too much out there and I can't you know, can't get my stuff out there. That wasn't his perspective. His perspective was very much close to yours, which is there's a lot of good games that aren't getting played. There's a lot of good games that are getting made, and he called it the garbage pile. And and then because of the churn, they end up you know getting put on the shelf. And and he that's what he felt as well. Is it's just a, it's a crying shame. It is. I mean, it's so sad. I mean, I've got really great games that. I mean, I'm 53 now, and I, you get to the point where you go. I wonder if I'll ever play that again before yeah. I die. <laughs> it's not so, what if. <laughs> no, yeah. So it, it is sad that there's, there's so many great games. And also, you know, and uh, for the last year, none of us have really been able to meet up properly. But even before that, my gaming group was once a Tuesday and then, you know, someone had a baby and someone moved away and, you know, you, you start to meet less and less and, so it's harder and harder to get a game. And when you get a game in, sometimes you go back to the tried and tested favorites. You don't often try out new stuff because it's a lot of effort to, to get it to the table. And teach it. And, yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, I, I, I don't think there's any answer out there. And, it, you know, uh, if you'd said to me when I was entering the industry, like, try not to make too many games because there's a lot of us <laughs> making great games already. You know, we'd be like, no, yeah, of course not. <laughs> So, and, you know, and we, we thrive on new great ideas. We, we want people to create new great ideas and the, the, the companies of the future are being formed on Kickstarter and in people's bedrooms now. Um, but, um, you know, I think, you know, hopefully the industry, the, the population of our in tabletop world will grow so that, you know, all those secondhand amazing games we've got will find new homes. And we can afford to buy new ones. <laughs> Amen. So I, I'd be yeah. curious, is there anything that you um, are seeing now or smelling now that gets you excited or you think it's interesting? Or if, if, if people are listening to this in this uh, two years from now, will it go, ooh, Chris called that one? Um, what's on the horizon that, you, um, that you're looking at, do you think? 3D print printing. Ooh, interesting. Okay. So, How so? Yeah, we just did some research with our Star Trek audience and our Fallout Miniatures audience and the Star Trek role-playing audience. You wouldn't expect them to be fans. So of the, of the Fallout audience, um, about 50... No, sorry. 33% of them didn't have a 3D printer and not planning to get one. 33% of them did. And this is like <laughs> three or 4,000 people. And 33% yeah. are thinking of getting one. So that's audience is doubling. That's huge. And this, this research was done before COVID, right? And we know 
from one of the really big 3D printing sites that the number of people backing Patreons for 3D printing, buying 3D printing, has gone from about 8,000 to 38,000 in the last year. Yeah, insane growth. So the the role-playing audience, 50% said they had not got a 3D printer and weren't thinking of getting one. 25% had a 3D printer. 25% were thinking of getting one. The audience is also doubling. Wow. So the the people with 3D printers are doubling and trebling, you know, uh, and it's growing really fast. So I think, you know, anyone who makes miniatures in the old way, I mean, we do, we've got a factory that's still growing. We're probably going to double the size for next year because we still can't make enough. Um, needs to be thinking about this in the future. We already have, we're one of the first companies to... Uh, sell a licensed range of 3D printed products for tabletop gaming, Fallout and Elder Scrolls. Um, so we've really embraced it and dived in and it's gone really, really well. And so I think that, you know, the trouble with 3D printers at the moment, it would be like me going, here's a color printer, but you need to, you need to watch a few YouTube videos to, to make sure right. that the color prints right. And Julie, with her video, thinks that you need these 17 settings to get blue right. And yep. Dave has these other 27 settings to make sure it even sticks to the paper in the first place. Yep. It's crazy, right? Yep. But um, it's only a matter of a few years. They, it, they keep getting cheaper and more simpler every year. Um, and uh, there's already some software called Simplify 3D, which is amazing for getting 3D printers working. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, you know, I, we're a few years off where you can just go home and go, I fancy a new unit of Orc Archers for my gaming and I'm going to press the button and they'll be ready for me in the morning and I can literally take them off the printer and start playing with them. Uh, even colour versions, you know, because you can 3D print in colour. So it's, it's um, um, you know, before you have your HP home 3D printer that just works and you don't need to be a programmer to use it, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a few years away, but it's not far off. It's the, it's the, you should be thinking about how you can use 3d printing in your gaming. Um, if you're a designer that is, and, um, you know, there isn't a halo for 3d printing, like there was a halo for Xbox yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I'm, we're working on some ideas that might be that killer app and I, you know, and in, we've got a big project launching that we're announcing this summer that is launching episodically um, with 3D printing as, as an intrinsic cool. part of it as well. And it's a new version of 2D20 as well uh, oh. that will teach you how to play from the moment you open the book. So you don't have to read, you don't have to read character creation. That's you literally big. just start playing. That's very, very big. Um, I agree with you, Chris. I think that we are, the demand is, is one of those rare times where the demand is way ahead of, uh, way, way over the skis of the technology. Mm, yeah. But to your point, it's just a matter of time. The demand is yeah. too great, right? Think that, about that how technology someone, changes. Yeah, Exactly. At some point, someone's going to put out that 3D printer that becomes the, you know, the HP uh, color printer for everybody. Everybody, yeah. that's what you buy, right? And yeah, because, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, what prevents me from doing it um, is I don't have the time. Yes. And, and right now it's a hobby, it's right? A big it's big times. I mean, it's not just a hobby. It's like, here, here's all the, go and make the plastic Lego bits before you stick the Lego bits together. Here's how to mold Lego. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Um, it, yeah, it's very, int I mean, you know, for some people, it, 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 but it, I mean, it's, it's a fun hobby because you can, the, the cool thing is you can 3D print new parts for your printer 
to make it print better. <laughs> I mean, that's insane, like, that you can do that. Um, and it's, you know, for people who love that technical side, it's great fun. Um, and right now I enjoy paying those people to print stuff for me. Yes. But yeah. but eventually that'll change, right, where I won't have yeah. to and that, and that gap will uh, fill. But, but we're going to have a, a new store in the summer where you can buy all our stuff 3D printed. Well, all the in the 3D printed range if you've not got a 3D printer. So that's going to get bigger and bigger as well, I think. So. Yeah. Well, and it's um, to your point, um, companies like you need to start thinking about it now because – you know, again, there's a runway. You don't just yeah. switch your business model yeah. overnight to make that happen. Yeah, no, that's um, right. yeah. So, Chris, is there um, obviously I'm going to link to to the website um, uh, here um, in the show notes. Um, if people want to get more Modifius or more Chris Birch, where should they go outside of just the website? Uh, well, Facebook. Um, so um, uh, forward slash uh, Modifius uh, on Facebook and uh Twitter forward slash Twitter uh, forward, forward slash Modifius and Instagram and YouTube is you know it's a whole bunch of places to find us chatting away. I'm always usually chattering away in the community on Facebook. Um, Wonderful, so usually easy to find there. And, uh, yeah, with all this free time that you have. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, and last but not least, is there anything that we have not talked about, Chris, that it's important that everybody listening knows about? Is there, is there a product uh, that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure people... Well, one, yeah, we probably should uh, just make a point that, you know, we brought Acton Cthulhu back this year. It's now come out for 2D20. And uh, it's all new artwork. And uh, it's uh, kind of more pulp, two-fisted punch Cthulhu in the face um, and an Nazi at the same time. Um, and a cool engine. Say. So it, it, yeah. it's amazing how well the, the, the engine fit and, and it's, 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 it's good, Chris. You yeah. Know yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and of course we've got Dune and the fallout role-playing games, which are landing this summer and, and five parsecs, if you want a cute little kind of indie project is, is definitely worth checking. And then keep your eye out for the summer uh, for our oh, well. big new announcement, which is in the same universe as acting Cthulhu. That's exciting. That's very, very exciting. Well, Chris, I, I can't thank you enough. It was, this was very generous of you to come on. And um, I really enjoyed this. And I hope uh, hope that at some point I can talk you into coming back. For sure. Yeah, no problem. Wonderful. Thanks for those of you that, uh, thank you. For those of you that sat through all of this, I appreciate you too. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Take care. Bye. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads All right, this is great. Um, how are you on time, Chris? I yeah, don't I'm okay. T- you're doing okay. Good. Yeah, good, yeah, good, yeah. good. Um, all right. So, which what what makes the most sense first here, um, Chris? For you, as we as we, what games do you want to talk about first? Um, do you want to work backwards? Do you want to work forwards? Don't is mind. there? Okay. All right. Yeah. However, it comes. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, uh, Something.
that was fantastic, Chris. Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, one quick uh, favor. Um, your mic um, is scratching on your shirt. Can we oh, okay. straighten out the wire just a little bit? Perfect. Don't know if it's... Um... It's not, like, terrible, and I'll be able to get rid of it, but... Uh, yeah, sure. It'll, be, okay. <laughs> it'll save me an hour of editing, so I appreciate it. I'll try and... Uh... Don't stress too much about okay. it. I don't want it to be a distraction because right. we've got a good groove going, my friend. Good groove. All right. All right. I'll bring us back. Star Trek Adventures, Dune, Mutant Chronicles. Now, outside of the... Uh, try that again. Outside of the 2D20, they've delivered some recent... Uh, wow, I'm struggling. Who wrote this? <laughs> We can keep this real short, Chris. Sure, sure. Because uh, we're coming at an hour and a half here. Um, the idea here is I would love to get, um, you know, f- you as an observer and as, and as a participant, what you think has happened over the last 10 years. And then um, any things that you're excited about. Not, And we can talk about things you're excited about from mm-hmm. from Modiphius. But I'd like to also know, is there things that you're seeing happening that you think are very exciting or anything you see happening that are concerning? Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Okay. Uh, oh hey are you still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.